This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. The end of an era as British troops start to return from Germany. What future for the Red Arrows after another pilot is killed? To suggest that this somehow or other affects the Red Arrows' future I think is, is frankly nonsense. Uh, I'm sure the Red Arrows will be flying again next year and thrilling us uh, uh, around the world. And ahead of Armistice Day we hear some personal stories of remembrance. Hundreds of British troops are to return home from Germany, marking the beginning of the end of a British presence on the Rhine since 1945. The decision to withdraw them was made as part of the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Today, the MOD has announced the first tranche of units involved in the pullout. Earlier, I spoke to our reporter, James Hurst, who has been sifting through the detail and asked him to outline the key moves. Well, there's a total of about 1,800 people moving back from Germany in this announcement today in moves that will start next January uh, and take up until about summer of 2013. The first move is going to be 43 close support squadron of the Royal Logistic Corps. They leave Guttersloe and go to Abingdon. That will be in January. About 120 personnel there, plus their families. Two Royal Anglian. They're currently serving in Cyprus, uh, but they moved to Cyprus from Sella. They will not be returning to Sella. They will instead move to the current site of RAF Cottesmore and that will be in July 2012, when their tour comes to an end. 620 people. 7th Regiment Royal Logistic Corps are also relocating to Cottesmore from Bielefeld. They will do that a year later, summer 2013. And two Yorks, again currently serving in Cyprus from a base in Germany. They have been told today that instead of returning to Munster in 2013, those 620 personnel plus their families will be going to Purbright Barracks in Surrey. So that adds up to the 1,800 people we're talking about. So what does this mean for the future of some of the bases in Germany? Well, it means Trenchard Barracks in Cellar is going to close down. Munster Station uh, will also be closed. Those will both be handed back to the German government. And this clears the way for the closure of the Rhine-Darling complex. And remember that ultimately this drawdown from Germany is about saving money for defence. So what they don't want to do is cut a piece off here, a piece off there. They want to be able to hand back and, and, and close down entire units. Now, a, a new headquarters for BFG is going to be established in Rhein-Darlen, but my understanding is that is going to move to Bielefeld. It's also worth pointing out, just, just for absolute clarity, those units currently in Cyprus that will relocate back to the UK, that's not going to affect the structure in Cyprus. The structure in Cyprus stays the same. They are part of the Germany move because they're bases had been in Germany before Cyprus. And there's been some restructuring in divisions and brigades as well. Yeah, this is a project of vanity to those who know it's to effectively rationalise headquarters. Now, the three UK divisional headquarters in Edinburgh, Shrewsbury and Aldershot, we already knew are to be replaced with a single headquarters support command in Aldershot. That HQ support command going to begin in January 2012, should be fully operational by next August and taken over all the work of, of those divisional headquarters. There's restructuring of about 10 brigade headquarters plus the London division. That is due to be completed by April 2013. Now, the original timeline set down by the SDSR was half of troops to be out of Germany by 2015, all by 2020. Is that realistic? Well, look at the numbers. 10,000, that target to bring home by 2015, 20,000 by 2020. What has been announced today is, uh, by my maths, about 9% of BFG personnel. It is... A challenging task, at least. And the Chief of Defence Staff you know, acknowledged this just a couple of months afterwards when he was talking to MPs. There is other basing still 
being reviewed. But, you know, that leaves about 8,200 8, to, to be brought home on top of what's been announced today by 2015. The thing is, you can't just bring people back. You've, you've got to have accommodation for them. Interestingly, though, one of the announcements today, because there's been some, um, some smaller UK announcements, 3-9 um, Engineer Regiment leaving Water Beach in Cambridgeshire. Uh, Water Beach is closing. But they're moving up to the site of RAF Kinloss. Now, we didn't think those moves were going to be happening until 2013, 2014 that the Army got there. They're going to be there from summer 2012. So that move to Kinloss is being speeded up. I don't think that necessarily they've given up hope on on a 2015 uh, 50% drawdown. But, but you look at the numbers today, it does show the scale of the task they're facing. James Hurst there. Well, sit reps, defence analyst Christopher Lee is with us. Hi, Christopher. Yeah. Um, how does this change the face of the British Army? Well, I mean, it is the whole thing about the move from Germany, isn't it? Six decades in Germany. It's almost like a Raj in as much that that's where a big people have thought of the army of being in Germany. Um, what does it change? It doesn't change a great deal in as much of where we are on the old east-west border because that A doesn't exist and in fact we're much further east than that now. I mean we're in Hungary, we're in Poland etc and that really gets up the frock of, uh, of, of Prime Minister Putin. A couple of things, James was mentioning there about um, uh, 39 uh, engineers going up to Kinloss. That is what to do with those RAF bases. Cottesmore, army move into Cottesmore. The accommodation is already there. The communications are there. The runway is there when you have to start putting in transport, etc. So it is the United Kingdom moving back. The other thing to remember, of course, by 2014-15, which is what he was talking about, you know, the halfway house of this, mm. out of, we don't have the deployments to Afghanistan so more activity. But it has been this huge and logistical headache, which they've been talking about 1991. I just remember talking to somebody about, what do you do with all the tanks? There were 900 tanks there. He said, oh, you st- what police aware notices on them and stick them down in laybys on the 303. <laughs> I mean, that was the... You know, it was the jokey side of what yes. is a huge logistical problem. OK, so you say we are further east, uh, but this is the UK coming back. Geographically, the move is away. Is it away from our NATO allies? And does it, does it actually mean that strategically and politically there is a change or, or does nothing really change? Well, the, the, the function is different now, isn't it? I mean, that's where we ended up at the end of the Second World War. Um, there was a very good reason to have uh, the British Army there right up until... I suppose that the war came down and then 1991 when communism sort of collapsed completely. Very good training ground across the North German plain, etc. But we're doing now, we're, we're doing a different thing now. I mean, the great asymmetrical warfare ideas are far more in people's minds. You know, there's, the, there's Libya, Afghanistan, etc. And the NATO idea is also expanding. Also got discussions, in fact, this week... Uh, in, in Brussels um, about the idea of revising the concept of European uh, army, etc. Where would that be based? Well, uh, the headquarters obviously have to be in Brussels, etc. So there's a lot going on and Britain is retracting anyway back to the UK. So is the Cold War over? Oh, it's been over, it's been over for a decade. Uh, and that was one of the problems of NATO. Once the Cold War was over... What the hell do you do with NATO? In fact, why do you have NATO? And Britain is very, very much part of that. Sit rep with Kate Jabbar.
Still to come, three serious incidents involving the Red Arrows in the last two years. A former Chief of the Air Staff says it's simply a tragic coincidence. And ahead of 11-11-11, we hear some personal remembrance stories from Camp Bastion. Iran has reacted sharply to a report from the UN nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, which says there are signs it may have worked on designing a nuclear weapon. Tehran condemned the findings as politically motivated. It's always insisted that its nuclear program is entirely peaceful. The IAEA stopped short of saying explicitly that Iran is developing a nuclear bomb, but the report says aspects of Tehran's nuclear research and development suggest military aims. Middle East expert Hajir Temurian is from the Limehouse Group of International Analysts and he joins me now. Hajir, good to speak to you today. Um, last week on this programme we were asking whether this report would be a game changer. Now it's out, do you think it is? You can already see it's been, uh, it's had much greater impact than the agency's last reports. For example, it's deeply embarrassed the Russians and the Chinese, Iran's protectors at the UN. Much of the information is, of, of course, not new, but the agency's former head, Mohammed al-Baradei, who's probably going to be Egypt's next prime, uh, prime minister or president, uh, sat upon it. Now, Yukia Amano, the new agency head, has decided, possibly in his frustration, to publish it all, and it's very damning. It doesn't actually state that Iran is building a nuclear weapon, so what does it say exactly? It shows that a lot of Iran's research, buying activities and designing is uh, in nuclear matters can only have one aim, military. Uh, for example, it's been doing research into the actual design of an atomic bomb. It's been doing computer modeling to see how an explosion works. It's been hardening the outer layers of, of, a, of the cover of a bomb to make it um, suitable for carrying on top of a uh, long-range missile. And of course, all these things are very frightening and can only point in one direction, nuclear use of, uh, 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 military use of nuclear energy. From the reading of the report, what do you think is the most alarming of its findings? Um, altogether, I think the, the wealth of detail, the, uh, the clear military uh, aspects of the research, uh, all the secretiveness, everything. Uh, Christopher, just tell us a little bit about where the IAEA gets its information from and how reliable it is. Well, I mean, there are five five main places. There's Nantas, where you get most of the enri enrichment done. There's Fardal, where you, where you have these great centrifuge uh, complexes. Isfahan, uh, you have uranium conversion. And, of course, uh, Boshir, where the Russians are involved in a nuclear facility there. Now, they're not all military or suspect military facilities. But you put the information from each one of those and you start to get a picture. You also take satellites and you put a keyhole satellite, for example, over the top of Iran where you know these places are and you look what's around them. You look what building's going on. You look what sort of reinforcement is going on. Because, for example, if you've got a peaceful use of, uh, of nuclear systems, you don't need to bury it sort of six storeys down beneath the ground. You also see what railway lines they've put in there, what the roadway they've, they've put in. Then you pick up stuff from what the Iranians themselves say, because quite often they're, they're very proud of what they're doing. Just this week, there was a, there was a, there was a picture of uh, um, uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad leading a group of technicians through a facility at Isfahan, I think it was. Now, put the lot together with the expertise that's in the IAEA in, in Vienna, 
and it's been going for a long time. These are experts. They're not, it's not just a pressure group. Then you build up enough picture. One of the things that uh, uh, Hajir was talking about now, about the testing of systems, they've been testing, three months ago, they started testing a trigger mechanism. In other words, the detonator. Mm. If you're going to have a bomb, you want to have a trigger mechanism. If you're not going to have a bomb, why would you have a trigger mechanism? Uh, Hajir, um, Iran has been saying, or at least the president has been saying, that they really are not building a nuclear bomb. They don't want to build them. Why build two if there's 20,000 out there with, with everyone else around the world? Um, what, what's your thinking on this? Is it posturing at the moment? I think it's quite possible that they might emulate what uh, is Israel has done. Israel apparently has got at least 200 nuclear bombs ready to be put together at the moment's notice. But because the last screw has not been put in, they can put their uh, hands on the, their, their hearts and say, we have actually not uh, completed or built nuclear bombs. So that, that would give, that kind of potential would give Iran the um, frightening potential uh, to be taken notice of by others. <laughs> and Christopher, the, the enemy here, is it just Israel? Who, who does it's Iran see Israel, as their, is, it? Is, it? is it? No, I mean, see, I mean, uh, 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 she's talking about the, what the Israeli capability. We've known for 20-odd years that the Israelis, what they've been doing on the Dimona site, in the Negev desert. Everybody knows that. The point is that the Israelis at the moment are pushing with the support of one particular person, that's Tony Blair, to go and bomb the the Iranian facilities, to knock them out. It's not going to happen though, is it? Uh, well, it's not going to happen. People keep Has telling you? me it's not going to happen. Is it going to happen? It, uh, Iraq wasn't well, going to happen. I think it would be frightening if they tried it. First of all, it would merely put back the program. Secondly, British and American navies, for example, for years would have to put their flags on all foreign tankers going to Kuwait and Iraq to, to buy, get oil. The uh, precarious situation of the world economy would get far worse by having to pay much more for oil and uh, there would be no end in sight. And uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei, the real leader of Iran, not Ahmadinejad, the president today, has been uh, saying that he would act against these states from within. In other words, uh, terrorism in Britain, France, America, etc. Do you think this report really changes things? I think it does. I think you can see from Iran's own uh, reaction from the... uh, almost silence, great silence of the Arabs, uh, who, which can only be um, interpreted as, as, as support. Yes, it's changed the world. Yeah, I, you see, the point is Iran doesn't have any friends that it can trust, except perhaps Russia, because it's doing business there, because, and perhaps China, because it wants to do business there. And so where does this all focus next? We now go to the Security Council and there'll be a big push to get this report discussed at the Security Council level. Therefore, somebody will be asked to make a decision. And that's when the washing goes on the line. Hajir, what do you see the next development as being exactly on this? Uh, the, uh, Mr. Juppé, the foreign minister of France, is saying unprecedented uh, sanctions. I think the horse has already bolted, actually. I don't think they are going to do anything that will stop Iran. They should have tried it earlier. For example, now they could try, at least Western governments on their own, could ban all Iranian airlines uh, landing in Europe and North America. And not only that, they could, if they really wanted to, ban any foreign airline that goes to Iran from landing in Europe and North America, and that would concentrate minds. All right, Hajir Tamorian, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep.
An RAF board of inquiry is continuing to investigate the circumstances surrounding the death of a Red Arrows pilot. Flight Lieutenant Sean Cunningham was killed when he was ejected from his Hawk jet when it was on the ground at RAF Scampton. There have been three serious incidents involving the Red Arrows in the last two years. Earlier I spoke to former Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Graydon. I asked him what kind of process goes into action when there's a tragic incident like this. Well, the first thing that, that obviously will, will happen is the uh, formation of a, a board of inquiry. And uh, I imagine that right at the beginning of that will be uh, an engineering consideration to ensure that uh, if there was something wrong with the ejection seat in this case, that uh, all other aircraft with those uh, sorts of ejection seats are temporarily grounded until they've been inspected and ensured that, that they are safe. So my understanding is that that's what's happened immediately. But the actual formation of the Board of Inquiry will bring experts together to analyse what happened and I hope as quickly as possible to find out what happened. The fact that the MOD has grounded all aircraft with similar ejector seats except when they're absolutely necessary, does that, that signify anything in particular or is that a routine action? No, that's, that's absolutely routine. It's the safe and prudent thing to do until it's proved that uh, those ejection seats are, there isn't some inherent uh, error or problem with them. But that's always done and, and hopefully they'll be able to release the aircraft back to normal flying training as quickly as possible. There have been three serious incidents involving the Red Arrows in under two years. Is that just a tragic coincidence or can more be read into it? I think it's a tragic coincidence and I think it's quite important on, on this particular incident to, as it were, remove it from the Red Arrows environment if, if that's possible. I know how difficult it will be for, for the aircrew and ground crew there and, and everybody uh, who knows the families. But the fact is that uh, a, an accident, uh, a very unusual accident like this could nevertheless have been, uh, could have occurred on any aircraft fitted with an injection seat anywhere in the world. And I think it's really important to, to stress this. It's not peculiar to the Red Arrows. We're often told, though, that the Red Arrows are the elite uh, of the pilots. Uh, just how dangerous is their job? Well, I think they would say it's, it's not dangerous. I mean, all of us who have watched them for years and, and admired them thrill to the fact that there, there's, a, there's a risk factor in there. But I think those who fly in it, and uh, I've had the privilege of flying with them on a number of occasions, would say that it's extremely well-controlled risk. So I don't think they look on it as inherently dangerous. They look on it as, as something that they get a huge thrill from doing and are very proud to be involved in. At the time of the SDSR, questions were raised about the cost of the Red Arrows. There now appears to be a human cost. What do you see as the future of the Red Arrows? Well, I think, uh, as your earlier question uh, suggested, we need to remove this from a, a sort of Red Arrows issue. It isn't a Red Arrows issue, this uh, particular accident. It, it's a tragic accident which might have happened on any uh, sort of aircraft. So, as it were, to suggest that this somehow or other affects the Red Arrows' future, I think, is, is frankly nonsense. Uh, I'm sure the Red Arrows will be flying again next year and thrilling us uh, around the world. And, and I, I really hope and, and believe that that is the case. Just describe to me, if you will, what you think the importance of the Red Arrows is within the RAF. Well, within the RAF, I think they, they represent um, the best of, of the Royal Air Force in, in, in the sense that their, their excellence is a, is a household word. Uh, I think the RAF is extremely proud of what they do. I think the nation's extremely proud of what they do. And they're terrific ambassadors, not just for 
the Royal Air Force, but for the nation and for British industry. After all, they're flying an aircraft that was designed and built in the United Kingdom. So for all those reasons, they are very, very exceptional, very often called the best of British. I think that's what they are. A lot of focus is being paid, certainly in the media, to the ejection seats. The, all aircraft using them, except for essential purposes, have been grounded for the moment. Just how fragile are they? How often do they go wrong? Well, they don't go wrong very often at all. I mean, they saved hundreds, probably thousands of lives over the years, so we need to get that in context. But, you know, they're, they're basically a gun, a gun that fires a, a pilot out of the aircraft to a sufficient height uh, to enable his parachute to, to open. Um, and therefore, they are inherently dangerous in, in the sense that if something goes wrong with them or if they are mishandled in any way, they can kill. And they have done uh, in the past. There have been accidents involving ejection seats. Uh, we don't know uh, what exactly. the, the cause was in this case. But as I say, they save lives. But for one reason or another, on occasion, if something's gone wrong, then people have died. Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Graydon. Uh, Christopher, why are the Red Arrows so important? I think they're important for, uh, as an image, aren't they? I mean, I don't think they, they recruit anybody. Um, they do maybe sell a few old Hawk trainers. But it's an image thing, and that is frankly the only reason. Although I remember talking to somebody at Eastbourne, and Eastbourne have an air display, and the red arrows come across, and they make two passes over Eastbourne and turn barrel rolls and things like that. And there was, it was, the weather was bad. And the guy I was talking to was the head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce. He said, we lose 22% business when they don't perform. So there's that side of it. But let's put it in perspective. Two deaths this year uncertain certainly about one of them the last one Indeed. Um, I don't think the Red Arrows get more deaths than the other operational squadrons mm. well there hadn't been any instances no. had there in, uh, since 1988 that's right that's right I mean it's it's fine flying um, it's precision flying and when there have been accidents it hasn't usually been because of the ability of the Red Arrow pilots or the formations they fly or whatever. So I think that red arrows per se don't cause accidents. And, and, and is it this, their importance as an ambassador, their symbolic importance that, that's made them escape the defence cut so far? Uh, well, yeah, and, and all countries have them. I mean, the Italians and the French have got sort of their versions of the red arrows. And don't forget, they're also there, there are helicopters that do red arrow type things. But yes, but there is always a question. Every time something comes up, you look at the ceremonial and the exhibition stuff, and uh, the MOD says, how much can we save? And would people actually notice it? Or do people actually save? If you took out the red arrows, frankly, you'd be able to operate half a tanker squadron. So they really are good value for money. They're good value for money, but then so is half a tanker squadron. If I'm flying, let's say, a typhoon, I don't want a red arrow alongside me. <laughs> I want a tanker that can juice me up so I can carry on the operation. And that's one argument in the RAF, especially if you don't happen to be a fighter pilot. How risky a job do you think it is being a pilot? I mean, uh, we heard a, a pilot or a red arrow a pilot? A red arrow's pilot. Uh, I actually don't think the risk is great. Look at the accident rate and that will tell you something. These are some of the finest pilots in the world. And to do what they do is, is rather like it's, it's an air ballet almost. It is spectacular for we non-flyers sitting on the ground, especially when they shoot out sort of red, yes. reds and blues. But uh, it, is, it is not difficult being a pilot, but it's superb, superb craftsmanship. 
Tomorrow and on Sunday, British service personnel around the world will pause to remember those who have fallen in conflict. For many in the armed forces, the commemorations on both Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday offer valuable time for reflection during pressurised working lives. SITREP asked some of those serving in Afghanistan to share some of their thoughts on remembrance. My name is W2 John Hughes of the Parachute Regiment. Remembrance Day, what does Remembrance Day mean to me? Well, firstly, it's a poignant uh, reminder of the service and sacrifice of soldiers, airmen and sailors uh, si- since the, the First World War, quite obviously. And having come from a, a family where people had served, and uh, my grandfather, for example, in the Second World War, uh, and other members of, of my family, not least my father-in-law, who also served with the Parachute Regiment, uh, for 22 years. It's, it's a poignant remember, remembrance of people and the, the cost to young men's lives, you know, across the world. Uh, my name's Captain Andy Kerr. Uh, I'm currently serving with the Royal Engineers in Afghanistan. Uh, remembrance Sunday to me uh, means that I get a, a bit of time on my own to, to remember the guys that I've known and lost in, in my 27 years in the Army. Um, and also to remember my family members that have served uh, and have currently passed um, since the end of the conflicts. My great-grandfather served in the First World War uh, and he served in the Battle of Mons um, as a Royal Engineer. Subsequently he named all his, he named his eldest son Mons uh, and that's been a trait that's carried on through. His, my grandfather served in the Second World War, he was in North Africa, uh, Sicily, Italy and then came round for the D-Day landings. Uh, he was an armoured engineer um, and he served in the same tank all the way through the, the Second World War. Uh, I'm W2 Mike Garnett. Uh, I'm currently with uh, Headquarters Regional Command Southwest in uh, Camp Leatherneck. Um, what remembrance really means to me is that every year I go to the Men in Gate in Ypres um, and obviously it, I then reflect on uh, over the last sort of 12 months what um, you know what's happened over here, especially in Afghanistan. My name's uh, Sergeant Lee Hubbard. I've served with the Royal Engineers, 35 Engineer Regiment in Helmand. Uh, Remembrance Sunday means to me um, thoughts go back to uh, times of Iraq um, for earlier times. The regiment losing people, uh, specifically 37 Squadron, Rab Thompson. Um, is my thoughts go very much uh, family tied, really. Um, I think about all the people that would have served with my grandfather during the war. Um, and people that will serve my father, especially things like the Falklands um, and Iraq for my own personal reasons. Um, and still here, um, all the guys who are out on the ground who are daily um, giving their lives or limb for the service of our country. The thoughts of service personnel in Afghanistan. Christopher, a lovely insight there into the minds of some soldiers in this Remembrance Week. It's interesting how they combine remembering those who died in the First World War and those who've died in more recent conflicts, isn't it? Well, the poppy is the symbol, isn't it? Which the British didn't start. I mean, the Americans started the idea of using that poppy. The British, I don't think, started until 1921. But it is this idea of the tragedy of the two wars. But the First World War, is, it was inexplicable to so many people. I know, I mean, in my family, we lost five uh, people yes. in, 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 in wars. Um, and that gets into a family, the whole sort of psyche of the family. But it's interesting also that on Sunday I shall be at um, a local uh, war memorial. Mm. 
And I know jolly well from last time I was there and the time before, there'll be young mums there with their six and seven-year-olds. No service background whatsoever. Just it's a feeling that they ought to be there. So it's not just a military thing. This is something which... It's, it's, it's something which the nation can join in, even if they have no military uh, connections. It's rather unfortunate, the timing of this um, announcement or this, this, this news that the National Memorial Arboretum, is, the funding is going to be cut by 20%. It does seem extraordinarily insensitive that this comes out now. Well, yeah, and it's also, it comes up every so often that, uh, that you know, it's the, it's the big mad dog that is the MOD that will take things that are so sensitive to uh, the British public. You've only got to have a story, for example, that the MOD is not giving enough attention to wounded uh, wounded soldiers, and it's the MOD again. They've got to cut money. This is one thing. This is a personal point of view. You don't cut it from something like that. Mm. You don't cut it from something like that and say, this is something we do in, in remembrance, that people not necessarily gave their lives but their lives were taken, and that makes it even more pertinent. Uh, on the poppy appeal, um, it's made the news, of course, this week because of the row uh, between FIFA and the FA over the England team wearing them. Obviously, we now know that they'll allow them to put the poppy on that black armband. But what do you think other countries make of this, about the wearing of poppies? Well, I was, I was talking to somebody uh, in, in Germany two days ago, and he said, I can't quite see it. He said that... See what? Uh, row or, or can't the fact that we quite, there's a, quite see why there's a row about this. He said, we wouldn't mind. He said, and after all, we've sort of had some sort of interaction with you twice in the last century, haven't we? Mm. Well, uh, tomorrow, to mark Armistice Day, we'll be broadcasting live on radio and television from Trafalgar Square as we join forces with the Royal British Legion. Legion. That's Silence in the Square from 10 o'clock UK time on BFBS Radio, BFBS Radio 2 and BFBS one. Uh, Christopher, where did you say you're going to be tomorrow? I'm going to be, uh, well, I'll be at Bex Hill, Bex Hill on Sea, uh, which is the memorial overlooking the sea. But I have to tell you, the first time I ever went to a memorial uh, when I was in the services, my greatest concern was not the emotion of the moment, that I nearly tripped over my sword. <laughs> Christopher, what are you like? Thank you very much to, to you for your time today. Uh, tell us what you think uh, by following us on Twitter at B BFBS SITREP or you can email us the address is SITREP at BFBS.com We're back at the same time next week Thanks for listening So from me Kate Chabot Bye bye for now Digital radio and satellite TV in the UK, online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station, BFBS. Yeah.